If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Previously, when people spoke about peace, for instance in Europe in the 19th century, the meaning of peace was simply the absence of war. But today, there is a new kind of peace, which scholars call the new peace. And the new meaning of peace is not the absence of war, but the implausibility of war. It's a situation in which war is simply unthinkable. That was Yuval Harari discussing how societies have become more peaceful over time. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week we're speaking to Yuval Harari, a historian based at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Yuval is the author of Sapiens, a book that charts the entirety of human history, from our first steps until the present day. Sapiens was originally published in Hebrew a couple of years ago, but is now available in an English edition, published by Penguin. I headed over to the Penguin offices in London to meet Yuval and discuss some of the fascinating theories in his book on subjects as diverse as agriculture, science, war and empire. I began by asking him how it was that humans came to dominate the planet in the first place. Well, the secret of success of our species, we often look for it on the individual level. We think that there is something special about me compared to a chimpanzee, that I'm so much smarter, more intelligent, more something. But the fact is that when I compare myself to a a chimpanzee one-on-one, it turns out that I'm not so special and I'm not so much better if you place me and a chimpanzee on a lone island and we have to compete for survival, I will place my bet on the chimpanzee, not on myself. (laughs) What really makes us special is not on the individual level, but on the collective level. It's the unprecedented ability of Homo sapiens to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. There are other kinds of species like the social insects, the ants and the bees, that can cooperate in large numbers, but they do so in a very rigid way. If there is a new opportunity or a new challenge, they can't reinvent their society to fit better to to, to the new conditions. And there are other social animals like the chimpanzees who are much more flexible in the way that they cooperate but they can do so only in very small numbers. The chimpanzees need to intimately know each other to cooperate. Homo sapiens is the only animal 
that can cooperate both flexibly and in very large numbers, like millions and millions of people who never met before and nevertheless joined together to form a network of commerce or to uh, fight a war or things like that. So this is what really makes us special and powerful, the ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. Why are humans able to do that? What is it about us that enables us to cooperate better mm. than, say, an orangutan can or a chimpanzee? The key is our imagination. We are the only animal, as far as we know, that can talk about things that don't exist, that exist only in our imagination, and more importantly, can communicate about things that exist only in our imagination. We can use our language not only to convey information about the world, like orangutans and chimpanzees and wolves do, we can use language to create new things. For example, you can never convince a chimpanzee to give you a banana by promising him, by telling him that after he dies, he will go to chimpanzee heaven and enjoy lots and lots of bananas for his good deeds while he was alive. Only homo sapiens can believe such fictional stories and this is why we control the world, because this is the basis for all large-scale human cooperation. If you check any large-scale human cooperation, it can be, of course, religion, but also in politics, also in economics, you will always find at the basis some fictional story about things that exist only in our imagination, like money, or like the nation, or like human rights, you have these millions of people who all believe in human rights, and this is the basis, say, for our legal system. But in fact, human rights, just like heaven, exist only in our imagination. If you take a person and you cut him open and you see what's inside, there is no rights there. But we invented this story about human rights, and everybody believes it. And because everybody believes the same story, they can cooperate even with complete strangers that they never met before. And so if humans have this great advantage, why did it take us so long to, to start dominating the world? Because for, for many tens of thousands of years, humans didn't, didn't really stand out. What took us the time to, to get going? Um, actually, it didn't take that long. The first evidence for the human ability to use imagination and language to create new realities is from about 50, 60, 70,000 years ago when we have the first objects of, which are clearly art and indications of religion, like you have ivory statues of imaginary beings. And this is exactly the point in time when Homo sapiens suddenly spreads from East Africa and causes the extinction of all the other human species that existed at that time, like the Neanderthals, conquers or spreads over the entire world and starts to change the entire uh, ecological system. We often think that our big impact on the world is a new phenomenon of, say, the last 200 years, the Industrial Revolution, or maybe 10,000 years from the Agricultural Revolution. But in fact, already 40,000, 50,000 years ago, Homo sapiens started to have a huge impact on the ecosystem. And you see it most clearly in the extinction of numerous species. For example, when Homo sapiens first reaches Australia, 
about 45,000, 50,000 years ago, within a very short time, 95% of the large animals of Australia became extinct. And when Homo sapiens reaches America about 15, 20,000 years ago, again, within a very short time, a few thousand years, about 70 to 80% of the large animals of America become extinct. Even before the agricultural revolution, it turns out, Homo sapiens caused the extinction of about half the land mammals, the large land mammals of the, of the planet. So it's actually, once you had this ability to uh, create mm. fictional reality and use it to forge networks of cooperation between hundreds and thousands of, of uh, sapiens, already then sapiens became the dominant life form on Earth and started changing everything around him. Yeah, I was very interested to the thing you said about how humans for tens of thousands of years have been wiping out other animals. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, why did that happen? Because the, when you talk about people going to Australia, it wasn't a large number of people. No. And they didn't have the technology we have now to mm -hmm. kill animals. So how were they able to wipe out these huge species? The biggest advantage was the element of surprise. Now, first of all, it should be clarified, it wasn't planned. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like they had a council and everybody <laughs> voted, let's kill all the big kangaroos and, and whatever. It happened inadvertently as a, as a result of hunting and as a result of other changes that people did to the ecosystem, like using fire to burn forests and, and thickets and, and to change the habitat. But the big advantage that uh, ancient sapiens had when they arrived to Australia or to America was the element of surprise, because humans don't look dangerous. For if you are, say, a giant kangaroo of the kind that lived in Australia back then, and you look at the new arrivals, they don't look dangerous. We are not very muscular, mm. uh, we don't have long nails or sharp teeth, we are not poisonous, so we don't look dangerous. Now, the animals, the big animals in Africa, they had time to learn that this kind of creature even though it doesn't look dangerous, it's extremely dangerous, and they learned to beware of humans, and this is why today Africa contains the largest concentration of big animals in the world, because they, they had time to, to adjust. When humans arrived in Australia or in America, they often call it the blitzkrieg theory of, uh, of extinction, because it happened so fast that there wasn't enough time for the large animals there to realize that this, this animal is very dangerous because it can cooperate in large numbers. And humans simply hunted more and more animals until they became extinct. So uh, hunting together with uh, the use of fire, as I said before. And you mentioned earlier the agricultural revolution. Uh, an interesting thing I found in the book was the way you said that that almost happened by accident. Mm -hmm. And actually, for the people that lived through it, it made their lives worse than it had beforehand. Mm -hmm. So how did that come about what, if it didn't really benefit the people who, who actually went through it? Well, for the average person, life after the agricultural revolution was worse than before. They had to work harder, their diet was worse, and the, because it was very monotonous, mm -hmm. and the work itself was far less suited to our bodies and minds. We are basically hunter-gatherers in, in, in terms of how we evolved, 
and our bodies and minds are adapted to running after rabbits and to climbing trees and getting apples and things like that, not to carrying all day water buckets from the river and, and weeding the, the fields and, and, and harvesting the corn and, and so forth. What happened are several theories about how the agricultural evolution uh, came about, despite not improving the lives of people, one of the best theories it, is that it was simply a miscalculation. History is full of miscalculation, people doing things thinking that they will lead towards a particular result and not taking everything into consideration so, it, so the result is actually very different. Basically, uh, people thought that yes, we will perhaps work harder planting and harvesting and bringing water from the river and all that, but in exchange, we'll get much more food. And then we'll have security, and we won't have to fear periods of hunger and, and, and so forth. What they didn't take into account, what they couldn't take into account, is that all this extra food will be uh, used not to make life easier, but it will lead to demographic growth, there will be many more people, many more children, many more people, and then each person will not enjoy more food than before. And secondly, there will be new social structures, new elites, kings and priests and armies and so forth that will monopolize most of the food resources and will leave the general population only the, ba the really basic things they need to survive. So if you're a king, if you're a pharaoh, after the agricultural revolution, life is quite good. But if you're the average person, the peasant, life is much harder than it was 10,000 years ago in the age of the hunter-gatherers. Do you think the agricultural revolution was the most important step on the way to the kind of advanced civilizations that begin around sort of ancient Egypt, mm. ancient Babylon? Was that the, the real important development to get there? It was one of the important developments, but not the only one. Uh, of course, in order to have a city or to have a kingdom, you need a lot of food in one place, and this cannot be done without agriculture, except on very special circumstances. But food is, is not enough. Again, you can see it with chimpanzees. If you give, if you take a thousand chimpanzees and give them all the bananas they need, they still wouldn't be able to form a, a single community because they won't be able to agree about uh, rules of conduct. And the same with humans. When you look at uh, wars, revolutions, so forth throughout history, most of the wars and revolutions of history are not about food. They are about agreeing on a common norms and values, basically agreeing on a common story that everybody believes the same story. And if you take, say, the French Revolution as an example, the French Revolution was not about food. It was not led by famished peasants. It was led by pretty fat lawyers that had enough food, but they disagreed with the king about the uh, basic story of uh, who should rule and how the society should be organized. The same, say, with the First World War. There was plenty of food in Europe in 1914. There was no shortage of food. The argument was about other things. So in order to have a city or to have a kingdom, just to have food is not enough. You need to create a basis in, again, a shared story, a shared ideology, a shared religion, which will, everybody believes in, 
and then everybody can agree on the same basic uh, rules of behavior. Another thing that you must have is a way to store and process large amounts of information. Hunter-gatherers and early uh, farmers, they used the brain in order to store and to process information. And the brain is, is quite good when it comes to storing information relevant to the lives of, say, 50 people, 100 people, 200 people. But when you try to organize a city or a kingdom, it's impossible. Because you need to store and process a lot of information, especially monotonous mathematical information like data about taxes, about property, about ownership of fields and things like that. And the human brain is simply incapable of storing and processing this kind of data. And therefore for thousands of years after the Agricultural Revolution you don't see cities and you don't see kingdoms. They begin to appear only once people learned how to outsource the uh, storage and processing of information from their brains to an external system which is writing. Once you have yeah. writing, you can do that and then you have cities and kingdoms. So you think writing was one of the most important ste steps on the way to something like ancient Egypt? Uh, definitely. You can't really have a big kingdom or empire if you don't have some kind of writing. It doesn't necessarily have to be the kind of writing we are familiar with. It can be all kinds of, of systems. Say in South America, you have a completely different kind of writing. You have the system of kipu, which is uh, basically um, strings with knots on them in different colors and different, different numbers of knots on each string. Mm -hmm. And this is used, this was used, say, by the Inca Empire to store and process information about taxes and ownership of land and things like that. So... It doesn't really matter how you do it, as long as you have something that can store and process information outside the brain, better than the brain. One another thing interesting thing I noticed about the book is the way you said that empires generally have been quite a successful way mm. of, of running societies. Why mm. do you think that is? Today, empires have a very bad reputation to say about somebody that he's an imperialist. is kind of the, the worst thing you can say about him or her, except that maybe that they are fascists. And it's usually thought that empires, first people think that they don't work. You can't control large numbers of conquered people for a long time, it will collapse. And secondly, people think even if you can do that, it's, it's, not, a good, it's not good because empires corrupt both the rulers and, and the ruled and they don't do anything good for anybody. But in fact, when you look at history, at least for the last... 2,000 years, 2,500 years, empires are maybe the most successful kind of political regime. Most people in the world in the last 2,000 years have been living under empires. Many empires managed to uh, survive for hundreds of years, like the Roman Empire or the Han Chinese Empire. And even when empires collapse, it's usually not because that subjugated people rise in revolt, but it is because of external invasion or because of infighting amongst the elite of the empire itself. And secondly, about this idea that empires are bad or evil, the fact is that most human culture today is imperial legacies. 
not only art and philosophy and architecture and so forth, but even when you go down to the level of the daily life of most people, there is nothing more central and basic to human cultures and language. And most people today in the world speak and think and dream in the language of empires, whether it's English or French or Spanish or Chinese or Arabic or Turkish. These are all imperial languages that were forced on our ancestors at the point of the sword by some empire or the other. Empires are so successful in a way because at their basis is the universal ideal. It's the ideal that a single political order, a single set of rules and laws can apply to all people. This is a very strange idea because looking from an evolutionary perspective, all social animals, including humans, tend to see the world as divided into us against them. Sometimes you see it in Walt Disney films, but in actual fact, no lion ever tries to become king of all the lions in the world. And bees, for example, they live in, in colonies, but there is no attempt to unite all the bees in the world into a single a bee community, like worker bees of the world unite, some, some communist <laughs> yeah. manifestos of, of the bees. But with sapiens, beginning with the ancient empires, like with Sargon the Great in Akkad in 2200 uh, BC, and later with the Persians and the Romans and the Chinese and all the other empires, you suddenly see this idea of why not have all the humans in the world unite into a single political system, which is the, the basic idea of empire. And this has been an extremely successful idea. And I think that even today in the 21st century, maybe we, we, we don't think about it like this, because we are used to having this uh, critical view of empire. But I think that we are now entering also a new imperial phase most of the countries in the world are no longer independent. They don't really control their economies or foreign relations. They can't wage wars as they, li as they like. And it is, it's, not, it's not deterministic, but it is likely that in the 21st century, uh, humanity, the, the imperial vision will be realized and humanity will be united under a single multicultural empire. Would you say something like the European Union or the United Nations is, is kind of an embodiment of that? It's going in that direction. It's still not there, but it's definitely going in that direction. And again, when, when, we say, when, when I say empire, I don't mean necessarily that a particular nation will rule the world, like, I don't know, the British Empire. It's more something like the late Roman Empire, which wasn't ruled by a particular nation in the 3rd century, 4th century, everybody's Roman. And you have emperors from all kinds of ethnic and cultural backgrounds. You have Spanish uh, emperors and you have African emperors and you have Arab emperors. So I think this is maybe the, the best model for what's going to happen with the political system in the 20th What is happening even now that the world will be dominated by a single uh, multicultural elite. And so the, the next big revolution that happened was probably the scientific revolution. Why mm. do you think that happened in Western Europe rather than somewhere else in the world like you know, the Americas China or, or China or India. or India or the Middle East or something? 
This is one of the biggest, uh, most important questions of history, certainly modern history. Why Europe? Because when you look at history previously, previous to, say, the late Middle Ages, nothing particularly important happened in, in, in Western Europe. It was never a, an important political center. Even the Roman Empire was based more in the Eastern Mediterranean than in Western Europe. Gaul and Britain and, and, and uh, Germany were the, the wild west of the empire, it's not, it wasn't the center. Similarly, no religion ever came out of Western Europe, no important cultural development, it wasn't an economic center. So it's very strange. And there are many theories, but frankly, I think we don't know. <laughs> there are questions about human history, like in other fields of science, which we would very like to know the answer to, but we, we simply have to be frank and say we don't know. It's very strange. It's probably just coincidence. You don't see anything in the previous history of Europe, or in the geography or anything else, that mandated the outbreak of the scientific revolution in, Euro in Western Europe of all places. And, and another thing is, we often think that in order to flourish, science needs a breathing space. It needs a society in which it is okay to question things, in which it is okay to hold different views, to have debates, a, pl a pluralistic society. But when you come to think about it, in the entire human history, you cannot find a place less tolerant than Western Europe in the early modern age. It's exactly the period, the 1500s, the 1600s, of the wars of religion, of the Inquisition, of uh, you know, expulsion of the Jews from, from Spain, the Thirty Years' War, the wars of religion in France, the wars of religion in, in the British Isles. It's a very, very intolerant place very um, uh, extreme in religious views. And this is exactly where, of all places, the scientific revolution broke out. If, you, if science needs pluralism, it would have made much more, it would have been much more uh, sensible to see the scientific revolution erupting in the Middle East, which, at, at least in that period, early modern age, was much more pluralistic than Western Europe. A place like Baghdad or Cairo you had many religious communities living side by side at the same time when, when in Paris and London it, it wasn't possible. So the, the answer is simply that we don't know. I mean, there are historians that have tried to come up with an answer to this, mm -hmm. but do you, do you not find any of their theories convincing? Yes, there are many theories, and, and some of them are, are partly true, but when you look at the big picture, like somebody says, okay, in Europe you had many different contending countries. It wasn't like a unified empire the same as it was in China. So if you tried to, to if you had a theory about the cosmos that uh, wasn't accepted in Spain, you could always flee to the Netherlands and publish it there. Yeah. For example, this is one of the, of, of the explanations. But... There are other places in the world, like uh, the coast of India or like the area of Southeast Asia around that time, when you also find uh, a lot of city-states, a lot of kingdoms, it wasn't a unified empire, a lot of trade going on, there were lots of connections between the ports of the entire Indian uh, Ocean, and so why not there? 
And similarly, you take uh, one quality after the other, which people say was special for Western Europe, and you can find it in other places at the same time or in previous eras. So I, I think that it's not like we don't have any explanation or we don't know anything. We do. But we don't have a really good theory which can answer the question why Europe and not anywhere else. And I think that as scientists, one of the most important things for science is that when you don't really know the answer to an important question, it's better to be frank about it rather than, you know, come up with the best theory you can and, and close the discussion. One thing that I noticed you wrote about is the fact that you think this is, we're now living in one of the most peaceful times mm -hmm. humans have ever lived in. So why do you think that's come about? Is that related to science at all? Yes, the amazing peacefulness of our era, first of all, just to, to clarify what, what we're talking about, because many people think it's, it's nonsense, what mm -hmm. kind of peace there is, the war in Syria and the war here and the war there. So it's, the idea is not that there is complete peace, mm -hmm. but that we are more peaceful than ever before. It's not only that um, there are less international wars than in the past, it's not only a statistical change, but it's a deeper conceptual change. The very meaning of peace changed. Uh, previously, when people spoke about peace, for instance, in Europe in the 19th century, the meaning of peace was simply the absence of war. If at present there is no war between Germany and France, this is peace. But today, there is a new kind of peace, which scholars call the new peace. And the new meaning of peace is not the absence of war, but the implausibility of war. It's a situation in which war is simply unthinkable. Today, when we say there is peace between Germany and France, we don't mean that there is no war, but a new a, a war might erupt any moment. We mean that it's simply inconceivable that, say, in the next year, Germany and France will go to war against each other. And this is true not for all countries in the world. There are still places where war is plausible. But in many places, say South America, a real war between Brazil and Argentina in the next year is simply unthinkable. Now, science has a lot to do with it because there are several reasons for this new era of peace. But I think that the most important reason is nuclear weapons. Hmm. Nuclear weapons made hegemonic war, wars about the hegemony in the world, wars between superpowers. They made, it, they made such wars not impossible, but uh, useless. You cannot come out a victor from a general in a nuclear war. And once the superpowers realized that they can no longer uh, resolve their conflicts with war, they changed they change the entire uh, um, geopolitical system, the entire international system, to a completely new kind of, of system in which war is not, uh, not an option. And this trickled down from the level of the superpowers to the level of the regional powers and to the level of ordinary states. So this is one uh, reason. Another uh, reason is uh, the rise of a capitalist economy, which makes war uh, simply less profitable. And this again has to do with science, because today in the world, the most advanced economies 
um, are based not on material resources like gold mines or cotton fields or uh, 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 flocks of sheep and cows, but the most important economic resource today in the advanced world is knowledge. It's know-how, it's um, uh, organizational knowledge in banks and corporations and so forth. Now, when in the previous eras, when uh, most of the resources, most of the wealth was material wealth, like gold mines or wheat fields, war made sense. Because you could invade the country next door and conquer its wheat fields and gold mines and take captive slaves and, and, and sheep and cows, and you became richer. But today, at least in the more advanced economies, war does not make sense. If, for example, the Chinese will try to invade California to conquer, I don't know, the Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. they will gain nothing because there are no silicon mines in Silicon Valley. The riches of Silicon Valley lay in the mines of Google engineers and Facebook executives and things like that. And you can't conquer it by force. If the Chinese will invade California, all the software engineers will simply go to India or someplace. So war becomes less and less uh, profitable. You still see wars in the world exactly in those areas in which the economy is still old-fashioned economy, in which wealth is material. Like in the Gulf War, Iraq invaded Kuwait because the wealth of Kuwait was the oil fields and not the knowledge in the head of the Kuwaiti sheikhs. And this is why war made sense in the context of the oil fields of Kuwait. Another thing that sort of you related to that was what you talked about, the growth of capitalism. Mm -hmm. How important do you think capitalism has been to human development over the past few hundred years? I think that everybody can agree whether they like capitalism or not. It's easy to agree that it has been one of the most important forces in the world in the last three, four, five centuries. It has been both the motor, the engine, mm -hmm. for the European conquest of the world. It's not a coincidence that the capitalist system developed in Europe at exactly the same time that Europe took over the world. Mm. And also, it has been the engine behind the scientific revolution. Because science and capitalism have a very tight uh, alliance between them. Capitalism finances science, and science enables economic growth without which capitalism is impossible. Capitalism is an economic system which takes growth for granted. Oh, not, not, not for granted, but its chief ideal is economic growth. In a capitalist economy, if you do not grow, you collapse. You can't stand still. Standing still, zero growth equals economic collapse because the entire system cannot function under such conditions. It always has to grow. Now, how can it grow? There are several ways in which you can grow, but the most important way is the way of science. When you look at it, over a period of decades and centuries, you see that what enables the phenomenal economic growth of the last two, three centuries is scientific and technological discoveries and inventions like the steam engine, 
like electricity, like uh, nuclear power, like the internal combustion engine, like computers, like uh, biotechnology. These are the chief motors for economic growth. So the deal, the basic deal of the modern world is that corporations and banks and governments give money to scientists and to technicians and engineers to do research and development. Without this money, science would have been impossible. Science is a very expensive thing. Maybe, in, I don't know, in some areas of philosophy or mathematics you can do without a, a huge budget. But in biology, chemistry, economics, even archaeology or history, you need quite a lot of money to do serious research and, and, and development. So you must have this financial support either from the private sector or from the government. And uh, businesses, corporations, governments give money to science not because they believe in some ideal of pure science and advancing knowledge, but because they expect that some way or the other this new research will translate into all kinds of new machines, new gadgets, new ways of production, which will uh, translate in turn into economic growth. And this will mean more profits, more taxes, and part of these profits and taxes can then be reinvested in more research, more development, and this is closes the circle, which is the circle of growth and progress of the modern world. Whether it's good or bad, it's a different uh, issue. There are reasons to think that all this economic growth and all this scientific development left the individual human in not a better position than he or she were thousands of years ago. But even if you think like that, still it's easy to agree that capitalism completely changed the way that the world functions. Actually, yeah, something I was going to come on to is, um, obviously your book talks about tens of thousands of years of human development, but I mean, are humans nowadays happier, is their well-being higher, than, say, the old hunter-gatherers, the foragers. Mm -hmm. is, is it possible to measure that kind of thing? It's very difficult to measure it, but I think it's the most important question in history. Historians seldom engage this question, whether, say, uh, people in uh, agricultural societies were happier than hunter-gatherers, whether the rise of Christianity increased or decreased human happiness. But I think that these are the most important questions. Mm -hmm. If we don't give an answer to them, then we don't understand the real meaning of historical developments. Because if, for example, the rise of Christianity increased human happiness, then our entire attitude towards it will be different than if we come to the conclusion that it decreased human happiness and people were more miserable after Christianity arose. And if we reach the conclusion that it made no difference, people were exactly as happy or as miserable as before, then what did it matter if there is Christianity or not? So it's very important. The scientific study of happiness and, and, uh, and dissatisfaction, both sides of the coin, is a new field. Only in the last two, three decades, scholars in fields like economics and sociology and biology and psychology mm -hmm. have begun to seriously study the dynamics of human happiness. Historians are still not doing it, but I think that they should. Based mostly on the research in these related fields, like economics and psychology and, and, and so forth, 
I think what we can say with the greatest certainty is that we are not much happier than our ancestors. It's easy to say that we are more powerful. We are a thousand times more powerful today than in the Middle Ages. But we are definitely not a thousand times happier than we were in the Middle Ages. Maybe a little more. It's, it's hard, hard to say exactly. But certainly, there is a huge gap between power and happiness. It's clear the way that power has been rising, but it's very un unclear whether happiness is, uh, is rising as well. There are two main reasons that biologists and psychologists and so forth have to explain this. First of all, it's, it's, it's not such a big surprise. It, people have been saying it for thousands of years, but now we have scientific uh, uh, research to, uh, to back it up, that happiness does not depend on your objective conditions. Happiness depends on your subjective expectations. You're satisfied or not satisfied with your life depending on what you expect from life. And what happens is that, yes, humans become more powerful, they have better technology, they have better medicine, better transportation, and so forth, but their expectations change. We expect much more than our ancestors, and therefore, relative to our expectations, we can be, and sometimes we are, as dissatisfied as people were in the Middle Ages or in ancient Egypt. Just to give an example, today people are used to taking a shower every yeah. day or every few days. And when we, we hear, or we read in a history book, that people in the Middle Ages, say peasants in England in the Middle Ages, did not shower for months on end, we are horrified and we think this was must, they must have been miserable, living dirty and smelly, not only themselves, but also everybody around them, their wives, their husbands, their neighbors, everybody was so, you know, not taking a shower for, for several months, you, you don't smell so well. But the fact is that as far as we know, they didn't care about it because they were used to it. They didn't expect to take a shower every day or every week. And again, if we think about our cousins, the chimpanzees today, it makes it easier to realize it because chimpanzees don't take showers and they seem perfectly happy with it. And also people have dogs and cats at home and the dogs never shower and still people pet them and kiss <laughs> yeah. them and hug them, but they don't mind. And even children, like human children today in the affluent West, they very often don't like to take showers. And at least at the age of three years old, four years old, is a daily struggles that the parents have to somehow force the reluctant child to take a shower. If showers were such a wonderful thing, children should have loved it. But what happens that slowly you become accustomed to these daily showers and then you start expecting them and then if you don't have them, you become miserable. But it doesn't mean that people in the Middle Ages that didn't have showers, that they were miserable. So it's all about your expectations in life, and that because people's expectations now are so much higher, mm -hmm. we're not necessarily happier than people exactly. 2,000, I mean, 5,000 years ago. To take another example, a political example, like you, you, uh, you see the revolution in Egypt in 2011, and you think about it from a historical perspective, the Egyptians never had it so good as under Husni Mubarak. The chances of the average Egyptian woman to die in childbirth, for example, were much lower in the days of Mubarak than in the days of Muhammad Ali, or the days of the Mamelukes, or the days of the pharaohs. Similarly, the chances of an 
average Egyptian of dying from hunger, dying from war, dying from plague, were much smaller mm -hmm. under Mubarak than in any previous era. So you would have expected that the Egyptians will be very happy about uh, Husni Mubarak, but they weren't. Mm -hmm. They were very dissatisfied and they made this revolution. Why? because their expectations were completely different. They were seeing on TV, on the internet, how people live in the UK, in the United States, in the affluent West. And they said, we want this for ourselves. And this is why they were dissatisfied, despite enjoying much better conditions than in any previous era in Egyptian history. So I'm just coming on to the book as a whole. So you, your book sort of covers a huge, pretty much the whole span of human history. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you hope this book will achieve, or that you hope readers will, will take from reading it? Or like, is there a message for the book? There isn't a single message. The chief aim of the book is not to promote a particular conclusion, a particular theory. The main aim is to give a general picture of the whole of history, because everybody has some kind of idea about history. Everybody have all kinds of bits and pieces of knowledge that they know about. You know something about ancient Egypt, and you know something about Henry VIII, and you know something about the Vikings. But many people, even after going to school and university, don't manage to take all these bits and put them together to form a single coherent picture. And the main aim of the book is to do that to paint a single coherent picture of the whole of history. You can disagree with parts of it, you don't have to, to accept everything, but uh, my real hope that uh, it will enable people to grasp the whole and not just uh, the parts. Uh, for two reasons. First of all, because we are living today in a global world. So in order to understand the situation, even in a particular country like the UK, you still need to know, to understand the world as a whole. Say, a couple of centuries ago, if you knew British history, it was enough. But today it's not enough. Your living conditions, the, the, the economy, politics, are influenced by what has, is happening in China just as much as what is happening here. So you need to have this global vision. And secondly, I think we are approaching the biggest revolution in history the most important choices that humankind ever had to make. Choices not about our tools, our society, our economy, but choices about who we are going to become. Uh, choices about how we are going to change our bodies and our minds with the use of all this new technology. And in order to make uh, good choices, we need to understand the big picture and not just small parts of it. So this is the main aim of, of the book. And so how do you go about writing a book like this? Because it's such a huge amount of history. How, would, how could you research such a, a huge topic and, and then write? It must be quite a challenging task to go about. Yeah, it, it's very challenging because it goes against all the instincts and all my education as a professional historian. Like in my BA, in my PhD, always the message was that you, if you write about something, you have to have a good, deep understanding of the subject. It's not enough just to read one or two general books about the subject. You, you have to go in, in, in depth. And most importantly, you have to use primary sources. 
you are write, writing about the Crusades, okay, so learn, study Latin, learn Arabic, learn Greek, read the chronicles of the Crusades in the original, read a document from the courts of the uh, Muslim princes in the original, go and see the archaeological sites. This is how you do serious history. Now, if you try to do this with a general history of humankind, it's impossible. <laughs> So you have to let go of these expectations. I'm writing about Neanderthals. So, okay, I'm just reading two, three books and maybe five, ten articles, and I go and speak with some experts, and that's it. I, I can't delve deeper. And similarly, I, I write about China. I, I don't learn Chinese for this. I, I just read books and articles in English. So this is one, one of the keys. Uh, the other thing is that the book came out of a course. I have been teaching a course in the Hebrew University, an introductor, introduction to world history, for the last uh, 10 years. And the book slowly developed out of my uh, lecture notes. And I all the time had the interaction with the students. So in a way, the students were part of the process of writing the book because they always gave me feedback what is interesting, what is boring, about which subjects they want to hear more, which subjects are irrelevant and I can just uh, leave them aside, and what, what, what things are not clear to them. Like, when you have some idea in your mind, to yourself it might, it might seem clear, but once you try to explain it to somebody else, you suddenly realize that you don't understand it at all. So this is something that happened to me again and again during the course, that I thought that I understand something like the agricultural revolution, and then I try to teach it, explain it to the students, and I realize, no, I have to go back to the books and read more because I don't, don't understand it. And this is how, over the years, the book uh, got written. That was Yuval Harari. As I mentioned earlier, Sapiens is out now in the UK, published by Penguin. In the US, it is due to be published early in 2015. And you can read more from this interview with Yuval Harari in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this issue, you'll find articles on Joan of Arc, the start of the Second World War, Scotland before the Union, and the history of smiling. You can get hold of our October issue now in all good news agents or as a digital edition. And if you're thinking of taking out a subscription, we're currently offering two years for the price of one to new UK subscribers, but for a limited time only. Head to historyextra.com forward slash subscribe to take advantage of that. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Since June this year, we've been running a series in the magazine entitled Our First World War, which recreates the events of a hundred years ago through the voices of those who were there. As regular listeners will know, we've also been including some audio clips from interviews by the Imperial War Museum 
within the podcast. This time we move on to October 1914, and here is Dolly Shepherd, a retired parachutist, talking about the time when she joined the Women's Emergency Corps. How did you find out about the Corps to begin with? It was in the papers. Uh, women wanted, you know, emergencies. Apply, what was it? I'll tell you the name of the street. Cosway Street, near Baker Street. It was off Baker Street. And as I say, there were about 100 of us applied the first night. We were all enrolled. And um, Mrs Childworth said, well, now it's no use, because we were all in hobble skirts. Have you ever seen hobble skirts right down to the ground? Anyhow, she said, well, now, you people, it's not a picnic. You're going to really work, and you're going to show people that you can do something. And so we intend in future to put you, we're going to make you, put you into khaki. You'll have to buy your own uniforms, but we want you, and you're going to be soldiers, but you've got to work hard. And so we started, that was a training. And the first training we had, she said, we can't do, we can't do anything without discipline. So, I don't know, it must have been with the permission of the war office or someone, because a grenadier guardsman came to give us drill. What sort of drill? Oh, form falls, you know, real square bashing. And he would say, I don't know whether you've ever seen anyway, it was form fours in those days, but he would say, and then about turn, about and he'd wait for a minute or two, and of course, us in obble skirts. And when he said, turn, uh, he'd say, do you know what you look like? A lot of jelly bags. <laughs> it was so funny, really. But that's what it was, and he really did put it. Well, I suppose we had a m month of him, it was alternately, he used to give us the drill because we had to have discipline. We couldn't do anything. And he's quite right. You can't do anything without discipline. Then we had first aid. That came on next. First aid and home nursing all the same night. And then um, um, signalling, semaphore, morse and semaphore. We had to do that. So that we had to be proficient so that whatever we were called upon to do it was really an emergency call. Any emergency we had to be able to do. Didn't matter. We couldn't say can't. I can't do it. No such a word as can't. That was Dolly Shepherd. You'll find more from the Our First World War series in each issue of BBC History magazine. Well, that's almost it for this week. Please do join us next time when we'll be talking to Dan Jones and Helen Castor about Joan of Arc. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode 
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.